There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Hunting Collective. I'm Ben O'Brien, and today we are continuing our conversation with conservationist, author, and speaker Shane Mahoney. Now, if you haven't listened to the first part of this uh, two-part conversation, go back to last week's episode and listen to it. Uh, If you need the crib notes from that, I'll give them to you here real quick. Shane and I basically talked about the creation of the North American wildlife model and we talked about his part in it and one of the main characters in that story is Dr. Valerius Geist uh, a mentor of Shane's who came up with and codified the idea in 1988 Shane took the idea around five years later on what he calls a road show around to different state agencies uh, different conferences to start speaking about the model as he spoke about the model and it became uh, an exciting principle set of principles for uh, wildlife and wildlife managers it started to grow uh, it, it was officially articulated in 2001 and, be, and has since become part of our hunting and fishing conversation we also started going over what are the seven core principles of the model that are articulated by Geist and later promoted by Mahoney. We got through three of them. There are seven of them. They're all intertwined. They all work together, but they are listed out in seven statements. The first three statements we discussed were, the first one is wildlife as a public trust resource. Uh, Number two is the elimination of game markets. Number three is allocation of wildlife by law. And where you're going to start this conversation, we'll be talking about the fourth tenant, of the North American model of wildlife conservation. Wildlife should only be killed for a legitimate purpose. Of course, this one is a little bit controversial, so it's good to start with this one. 
In this episode, we will cover the rest of the tenets, the principles of the model, and go back and look at some of its criticisms and some of the ways it will go forward. So hopefully this helps you uh, as crib notes from the last conversation, but please listen to both uh, and explore with us this model and its importance. Enjoy. As we break down this model, I think these first three are kind of like, yeah, this is pretty much it. Yeah. I would have, I almost would have been like, we could stop here. Yeah. This simplifies it. But you guys kept going. And I think once you get to the end, you start to start to realize kind of why. Uh, the next one is wildlife should only be killed for a legitimate purpose. Right. Um, and again, this starts to, to get into um, fair chase and different things like it that. Does. Uh, it does. So take, take us through this particular idea. Well, again, you know, uh, and we, we have to realize too that as those discussions and debates were going on, I mean, we didn't have all of the institutions and infrastructures for dialogue that we have today. Mm. We couldn't go to, uh, you know, a huge number of academics that were 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 uh, knowledgeable in this particular domain. We didn't have any who were. It didn't exist. The programs didn't even exist. So it was really left to a group of well-intentioned, relentless citizens and the people who were as open-minded and most thinking about the country in Congress, you know, uh, to to really bring forward these these rules and, and these laws. Legitimate, legitimate purpose, you know, hearkened back to the idea of no frivolous killing, for example, um, you know, so it embedded certain principles of fair chase and all of that. You didn't just uselessly kill an animal and leave it to waste and so on and so forth. Um, and it also got at the purpose that this excluded, of course, market hunting. That was not a legitimate purpose yeah. any longer, right? Because this more of a like a policy of just exclusivity. Like, it, it, it is. It's more less inclusive. Like you can bait and come over here, but it's more yeah. like this is what we don't. This is what we don't want. This is what we don't want. And ultimately, what the the, the legitimate purpose was, of course, was for food and defense of property uh, and defense of, of personal safety, obviously. So if you were attacked by a mountain lion or, well, you know, th- those things were obviously viewed. Now, one of the great, uh, f- you know, hairs in the soup with regard to the model that keeps getting raised is, of course, uh, and we had to deal with this in the book, but I've had to deal with it in many debates, was the fur trade. Yes. While these principles were would ideally have applied to all wildlife, uh, it is clear that this particular one, legitimate purpose, has not always uh, been as easy to corral and define. The fur trade was never really captured within any of the more restrictive aspects of the model because you could kill an animal you did not necessarily eat the animal. It wasn't in defense of property or life or anything of this nature. And then, of course, you you did it for commercial reasons. You sold the pelt, right? And many people, critics of the model, have pointed this out, and it is an accurate statement to make. The reason why, uh, in my, this is my view, because it was never articulated by Geist and never articulated in the writings of the model, but but it's a reality. And my explanation of it is this. The fur trade, first of all, was something of very, very long-standing historical activity that by virtue of its longevity with the Native Americans initially and then by the fur trade and the fur trappers, the Hudson Bay Company, the Northwest Companies, and so on and so forth in both countries, 
clearly was sustainable. There was no real indication that, with the exception of a few species such as beaver that became a craze for beaver hats in Europe, uh, there were relatively few other classic examples of where wildlife continentally was being denuded as a result of the trapping. Trapping also had a, a dis this difference from rifle shooting, which of course was the main way in which animals were being taken, rifles of all kinds, punt guns all the way to you know carbines and so on. These, these, um, uh, these uh, instruments were deadly effective. You could sit on a knoll and kill 80 bison you yes. know, at once. Yes. But when you had to set individual traps in rivers or along runways or things of this nature, there was a natural, if you will, break. There was a natural restriction on overkill because mm -hmm. there was only the methodology itself. Yeah. Only allowed for so much what, take. What, what, yeah. so, much take. so I think it was for those reasons and the fact, of course, that people still were relying heavily on furs in many cases, particularly indigenous people such as Inuit and so on and so forth, uh, for basic necessity that I think uh, it wasn't that the fur trade, I believe, was considered and deliberately uh, accepted. I just don't think that the fur trade ever came in under the frenzied review that was yeah. taking place because it was about the bison, it was about the waterfowl, it was about the deer, you know, that kind of thing. And as a result of that, rightfully uh, so, people can say, this basic principle uh of of legitimate take did not apply directly to the fur trade and that remains to this case to this very day so is it is it is accepted yes was it deliberately accepted no was there reasons why it might have been accepted i think so yes yeah and there they are what's also interesting however about uh this sort of uh you know, this whole idea of uh, of commercial use and legitimate take, where that has also fallen down. And again, it is for reasons that one can uh, discover and perhaps understand, depending on one's position, has to do with reptiles and amphibians. Now, we all know that it is quite common to go into pet stores and buy a small lizard or a small frog or something of this nature or to capture it yourself in the wild and bring it home and create a little home for it or a cage and keep that animal under those circumstances. When you think about it, there is just absolutely no way that anyone would be able to go and purchase a caribou and have them in their backyard <laughs> and have them as their pet or... <laughs> Right? Now, people don't think about this, right? Yeah. But I think about it. Uh, and, uh, I'm thinking about it now. now. But you see what I mean. Yes. It's completely yeah. different. And in today's world, and with our broadened view of the importance of all of nature and how the pieces work together, uh, we are confronted by this difference. We reference this in the book, too. I have an article that I wrote that deals with this issue in the book. We are confronted by this difference, and we must accept that the model's principles may in the main be correct and good and maybe totally beyond reproach in a sense. Uh, it doesn't mean that there aren't other issues occurring in North American conservation sure. that we shouldn't look at. 
I don't necessarily accept the argument of that as a failure of the model, so much as I say we can look to the model to improve that circumstance as well. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think this is a huge part. I think yeah. as, as we get going through these tenants, I mean, it's kind of a cascading effect of they're almost less universal with each step down. Yeah. And you have to remember that when these principles were first articulated by, by Valerius Geist, I was three there was, years old. Yeah, there was yeah, and yeah. there was no way to find them. Yeah, right. So this architecture that he drew out of the history is pretty remarkable yeah. when you think about it. When yeah. you're starting from nothing, this is yes, right? and I think there's you know the the way that they are intertwined and the way that they play against each other and the way that they kind of the question the questions raised by number four are answered by number two and, and exactly. so on and so forth is, they are is integrated masterful in, yeah. in the way that yeah. those are integrated and not and there's no way that ideas this broad or this complicated could go without challenge I mean that's no, just of course impossible not. Yeah, I'm no. sure you've over the years been challenged on many yeah. of these yeah. ideas but yeah I think this one is where it gets the hairiest I mean yep. it, it, legitimate purpose is you know, a very interesting idea of yeah. exactly what do you include inside of that legitimate purpose bubble. And I think we, uh, you know, in my experience in the hunting community, we uh, we shift that around all the time. We move it around all the time. Um, I can think of feral hogs being an example of one way that we've yeah. shifted it about. You know, we've yeah. said, we've kind of, uh, we've declared them to be uh, an issue, a wildlife, yeah. which they are, yeah. but when you transfer that to the hunting community, it's like the gloves are off now. Yeah. This is there's depredation involved here. Yeah. The gloves are off. Yeah. We can kill them any way we want yeah. because the legitimate purpose uh, is there. So yeah. now we can shoot them with grenade launchers or whatever, you know, whatever we want. So yeah. then that goes back to uh, fair chase, and you start to get yeah. entangled in this you know, yeah. fairly me- messy ethical conundrum right. um, with the killing of an animal. Well, and from the opposite side of view, if someone is philosophically opposed to hunting, they have every right, of course, and, and, and would be expected to question that adjective legitimate. Yes. You know, uh, I don't think legitimacy includes, for example, hunting, or I don't think that mm-hmm. legitimacy includes this kind of hunting or whatever it might be. Um, in other words... Um, and this is playing out, of course, in the debates because it's not necessarily framed as, okay, I'm now referring to principle four of the North American model. But this whole debate that is ongoing in society about what kinds of hunting people support. Yeah. So meat hunting is way up there. It's like a value system. Sport. Yeah. yeah. We get down to sport and trophy and so on and so forth, and all, all of a sudden the the, the value proposition changes and people are less and less and less supportive. So, but again, as a principle to say that wildlife must be taken, can only be taken for legitimate purpose, that is an incredible principle to have. Yeah, it's an infallible begin. Like, it's a fallible yes. place to begin. Yeah. Like, just yes, imagine we didn't have it. Yeah. Right? It could be taken for any purpose. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Imagine you just said, ah, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> Number five. <laughs> fuck it. Fuck all this. It's, it's too complicated. Yeah. Um, but it, it does go down to, I think, maybe where it begins or ends. I don't know where, whether this book, where this book ends, to me, is kind of like, what is the animal's value? Is it value for its own sake or is it valuable for the sake of us, right? Yeah. So I yeah. think that's I think that's where a lot of folks are challenging. You know, I've been challenged recently by some vegans and some folks 
about that. Like, is an animal valuable for your sake or for its in its own individual, you know, being? And can it be both? Can it be both? Yes. Can it be both? And in this case, it is both. It is. At yeah. the same time, which I think is where a lot of people get yeah. get a little bit confused. Yeah. You, run, you still run into that a good bit? I mean, in your... Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, people... You know, I, I speak to audiences that include a lot of people who don't hunt. And I also have spoken to audiences and have colleagues who are, you know, quite... Um, you know, quite um, purposefully and, and quite uh, seriously opposed to the hunting of wildlife. And, um, I, you know, my worldview has never made it difficult for, difficult for me to understand them. And as a consequence, it has never made it difficult for me to discuss with them. Um, and, you know, uh, we only have about four and a half percent of people in this country who hunt. If we're lucky, yeah. So there's a lot of people who may not be unsupportive, but are certainly not doing it, and they're not doing it for reasons. They may not be doing it, in some cases, it may be all these impediments we talk about, you know, the difficulty, the cost, the, the access, but that's not what's stopping a lot of people from hunting, even the people who are not opposed to it. Yeah. They don't want to do it. And a big part of the reason why they don't want to do it is they don't want to take the life of a living animal. They And they're not all, you know, silly people who don't know where meat comes from or any of those kinds of silly... I would, I would challenge anybody but, listening to this, so that people that don't hunt are silly, then most yeah. of the people in your life are silly. Yeah, yeah. well, of I course. Mean, and the, can't the be vast, that. vast majority of the nation is silly. You yeah, know. can't be that. So, I mean, I think that um, this question of whether the animal has value in and of itself and or value to us, my answer to that question is, of course, it has both. And it has both a value in and of itself uh, because it has beauty, because it has inspiration, because it has life, because it is capable of reproduction. I mean, I can go through a long list of why I think it has value in and of itself um, but I can also come up with a long list of things as why it has value to me. And many of those values are not embedded with its death. It has values to me as something that inspires me, that in, enriches my life, that I want to look at and examine and talk about and wonder about. Um, and yes, there are points at which it can be a, a part of the very food chain that I am involved in as an omnivore and often is, but that doesn't mean that that last one that I mentioned, the mm. actual food value, is necessarily, on the scale of things, so important that all those other values are minimal by any sure. means. You know, as, as I was telling somebody in a long conversation two nights ago, we got talking about this idea in our relationships with animals, which is something, of course, which has been a profound part of my thinking in life forever. You know, we, we just think about your pets, and I think in particular about cats. Dogs we know in a little bit more predictable fashion because we train them essentially to be, and, and bred them to be essentially uh, neotenized. They're puppies forever. I mean, that's what we did in the breeding of the wolf. We created the puppy forever in the domestic dog. That's not normal, but it's a beautiful thing. But our cats are different. Our cats are basically kind of, uh, you know, largely indifferent to us. Um, and yet, as I was explaining, you know, you sit in a room in your home, you light the fire in the fireplace and you sit down in an evening 
and um, we have two cats, Anna and Butler, and inevitably one of us is going to say, where's Butler? Where's Anna? And of course, if you don't find them right away or they don't come into the room, then you go looking for them. You know, you find them in the closet, you find them on the, you know, wherever they're sleeping and on a radiator or whatever they're doing. And then you're kind of satisfied you go back again. It's like I told a, a group of people at a table the other night, no one ever asks where Shane if I'm not in the room. <laughs> you know, we, we live with these animals for 14, 15, 20 years. Every time they come into a room, we have to look at them. Yeah. We watch them get up on a table. We watch them groom themselves. They don't look at us. They just go come into the room and they choose their spot and they get up and they rest there. We watch them constantly, whatever they're doing. And even when we're having a conversation, we're overlooking at, you know, the animal with his paw over the table, you know, relaxing in the firelight and so on. I mean, <laughs> they just, uh, right? So that value in wild things, and it's like I said at the at the bear uh, discussion, the, the discussion of the grizzly bear last night, some of them have even greater power to enthrall. You can be on the land in a boreal or subarctic system and in this landscape here and see elk and see mule deer and see eagles or ospreys flying and see jays and, you know, you might see grouse. You might, but see a grizzly bear. Yeah. And something different happens. See a black bear, even something different happens. But see a grizzly bear, something different happens. So those animals have these kinds of elevators yeah. of fascination and elevators of relevance too. So yes, they do have values in and of themselves. Absolutely, they do, and they do have values for human beings at many levels. One of the most basic and profound of which, of course, is as a source of food. Yeah. Yeah, and I think. As we get down into these tenets, um, some of them, this one in particular, um, is more purposeful. Well, I guess maybe not that. More valuable for the questions that it raises than than possibly like its prescription. It's you know it's it's tangible prescription, right? I mean it. It's more like we were saying before. It's more valuable for that reason, I think. Yeah. Um, because it raises this very important question that we can continue to refine as, as time goes on as sure the basis can. of the model. And we and will. I, and it's a living thing, the yeah. model. It's never meant to be. I was going to say, and then I feel like some of the criticism that I've read in the past is like, well, it doesn't address this. Well, okay, yeah. <laughs> how can one model address hundreds of years and generations of complex issues? It can't. Of course not. It, it, but at some level, it, it exists to raise a very important question, allow us to hammer away at it. I mean, it has to. Yeah, and, the, and people need to understand, which is the value of my translating this history, because out of sight, outside of myself and Val Geist, no one knows this history I give you. No yeah. one. Yeah. I, I, I know that. Um, and that makes a difference, because when he, f when he first articulated it, and when we first scrutinized it to think about it, it was not done to say this is the be and end, end all and you can't touch anything here. It was said in, in, in defense of our system that was being threatened seriously by yeah. something, which we now know is seriously threatened and yes. has seriously threatened it. It's no longer conjectural. Uh, that w he had to throw up and show that there was something real. And he did an amazing job. Now, some of the criticisms, therefore, sort of for some reason, sense that this is it and it can't be discussed and it can't be challenged. That was never, ever the thought. And secondly, the, the, 
he used the word principles to describe these things. Now, he could have chosen many words, and I don't know if he went through hours of angst over what word to use, but he chose principles. Many of the things that people say are not in there. Uh, like, for example, people have often said to me, there's nothing in there about the funding. That's a principle. No, not in my opinion. That is a mechanism. Yeah. Oh, there's nothing in there about habitat. Well, that's not really a principle. That is a mechanism. That, you know, I mean, we don't have something in there about population either. Yeah. So in some cases, people, too, don't look at these things, I guess, in the way that I did when I first met them and in the way that Geist has meant them. We wanted these things to be kind of like ideals, really, you know, like, you know, and you can debate them and you can touch them, but in the main, we're probably mostly going to fall back into agreement. We don't want commercial use of wildlife. Yeah. We do want public ownership. You know, those we do want of, them to be a legitimate take. Yes. Like we just do. We, we can, yep. You can beat me up all day. You want about what legitimacy is. Yeah, whether you should is. bait or whether you should run dogs or whether you should you know, and use that's the a bow. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of what Fair Chase then opens up, right? Yes. It's kind of like, we want Fair Chase. Yep. Let's then go to another area. Yeah. And discuss that. Like yeah. we don't we're not gonna discuss that in this context. Whether the, we want it. We're yeah, not whether, gonna, we do want it. We do want it, yes. but whether what? whether how it takes shape exactly um, is 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 gonna all I would say yeah. always be at odds as we change as humans. And some people have said too in criticisms, I remember this very well from a particularly aggressive individual in one audience one time, he just was relentless, he wouldn't let go. You know, was that uh, you know these these ideas didn't have like a pile of sub bullets that you know spelled out everything. And I said, "It's exactly why." I mean, no, that yeah. was deliberately not done because, first of all, that's meant to be a societal dialogue, um, and secondly, nobody can really write it down and and do justice to it without this broader discussion of, sure. what's, of what's taking place. Right? Sure. It's just not possible. No, it's huge. And I think this, you know, as we go through this one, every time I come to it, I'm like, this is the one, you know, yeah. it, it, being kind of in the middle. Um, the next one is wildlife is considered an international resource. Yeah. I feel like we can go through that pretty quickly, but give us a, a rundown of that. One. Well, it, it's interesting. Some people... Uh, you know, a recent criticism of the uh, of the model, which I and a group of authors responded to, actually had um, a comment that, well, I could agree with this if the word some was in there. See, you know, I mean, right? So here it is. <laughs> here it is. We, I could do it if you said maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, the point was, obviously, and what was being most thought about here were the big migratory species of marine mammals and the big migratory species on land, of course, yeah. were fundamentally the waterfowl and the shorebirds. And, of course, we could hunt certain shorebirds like snipe and, you know, and, and curlews and other things. And so it was... These species posed a particular challenge because often their breeding season or their breeding location was not in the country, right? And yet where they were hunted was in the country. And it was very clear that you couldn't simply have uh, a blind eye to where they were breeding and a close eye on them just being killed or vice versa. You had to be watching both ends yeah. of this spectrum where they fed in the winter, where they bred and so on. And so... 
the waterfowl really became, and the migratory, the caradjuri forms, as we call them, the, the shorebirds, they really drove, you know, this kind of principle. But of course, it also helped interject the idea of transboundary species. You know, animals living in northern Montana can cross over into the Canadian side mm -hmm. and vice versa, for example. But it was fundamentally about those really migratory groups. And that principle, almost more than any other, launched the most remarkable cooperative efforts and did so between nations, Canada and the United States, with the uh, Migratory Game Bird Convention and Treaty and then the North American Waterfowl Management Plan a hundred years before virtually any other part of the world ever thought about doing this, which is now being picked up in Europe and in between yeah. Europe and Africa migrations and so on It'd and so forth. It'd be more prevalent in Europe given the proximity yes. of these small countries. <clears throat> Absolutely. But this was done and has led to, of course, an extraordinary system of science and management and funding and a funding mechanism, by the way, which is also almost unbelievable, uh, which sees significant amounts of American dollars raised by Americans, hunters and sportsmen fundamentally, sent north to Canada uh, to be used for the protection, management and improvement of the breeding sites for these species up there. And we still have this unbroken, continuous engagement of Canadian and American scientists, policymakers, and managements involved in this for this huge array of species that fly along different flyways, different main corridors, which it took decades and decades to, to discover, uh, that are managed independently by species, by flyway in both countries. It is probably... It is unquestionably one of the most remarkable efforts in wildlife conservation that the world has ever seen. Yeah. And it comes out of this idea, this principle that Geist mentions, that wildlife is an international resource. And the birds that may nest in our country become the ones that feed, you know, in another and vice versa. You could have just said, wildlife knows no boundaries. Yeah. They don't know you're political, geopolitical. No, but by saying it's an international resource, it meant we had to take an active role. Yes. It wasn't just a statement of the reality. Does this this go to, I, I cringe to ever bring these kinds of things up, but does this go to, you know, we build a, law, a wall around the, the southern border in this country yeah, that does fly in the face of this conservation principle or this principle in general? There's no question that building a wall of any kind, such as being is contemplated, uh, will impact the movement of transboundary and transnational uh, species in this yeah. particular case when we're dealing with the wall with Mexico. Uh, so there's no question about that. Most of the species affected, of course, will be, um, it won't affect bird life, of course, yeah. because for obvious reasons, but it certainly will affect all those things that are terrestrial. And what the scale of that is and how many species are involved and what the ecological implications are for them, I'm not sure. Uh, but there are experts, I'm sure, who know it very well. Amen. But so. there can be no doubt that any time that we impair the natural movements of wildlife populations, we often discover that there were very good reasons why those movements were made yeah. and that the sustainability and viability of the populations once interrupted is often reduced. Yeah, we're creating some reactions we weren't... Anticipating. Uh, really I mean, they're, they're unintentional, of yes, course. Yes, of course. I mean, uh, yeah. um, all right. I, I think that's a good one, too. Just you know, We talk here a lot about the health of flyways. Yes. Right? And, and 
And, and we don't even, as we talk about the health of flyways, we don't even consider this type of idea. Mm-hmm. Just we just believe it's a flyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ducks pass, ducks and geese, yep. and other other fowl pass from Canada to the United yep. States on, in this flyway. We yep. don't ever consider that they've crossed this international boundary yep. and are subject to, could, could possibly be without this idea, subject to different. To completely different uh, laws and yeah. regulations. I mean, just imagine the absolute chaos that would have <laughs> occurred if that was the case. Yeah, no, and, it, it, it's know. something, you know, if you're a major, well, I, I know guys that chase the, the migration, they start in Saskatchewan and go all the way down through um, Missouri and go all the way to Texas. Yeah. Um, and they don't even, you know, it's not thought of in that way, I think, a lot of times. But this is an important one to kind of bring that home to people, that, that if this if this international resource isn't an idea, uh, there's a lot of species we, we truly care a lot about that would be, you know, um, under, under different types of scrutinies in different places. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. uh, There's another really interesting thing um, about this that's uh, kind of a, just kind of a, cute or interesting story you know those flyways of course now we have such amazing technologies with gps collars and you know we can figure out when a bird poops you know and when it pecks and you know so on Um, but those flyways were essentially delineated 
and accurately so as more advanced technologies have proven, by the use of these bands. Yeah, yeah. everyone is familiar yeah. with them, these little metal bands that you would put on birds. They become totems yeah. in the yeah. waterfowl world. And it's, it's incredible to think that you could take a simple technology like that and over time, with massive efforts, you know, to, to just band as many birds as you could from different places, and then ask hunters, yeah. you know, please send your band back to, you know, yeah. such and such. <laughs> uh, and then people could take all of those and over time determine where those birds were moving based on where they were banded when they were breeding versus where they were harvested or vice versa, where they were banded on their wintering grounds and where they were harvested. I mean, it's always seemed to me, you look at the size of this continent and the number of birds that are moving, and yet we figured those things out. And there are flyways. Like, it's not like it's just everywhere, right? Yeah. Uh, and that was discovered by the people who launched that incredibly simple thing and then just asked hunters and others if they found a dead well, yeah. duck or a goose, uh, please send this back, you know, to Washington, D.C. office of such and such. And, of course, there's all the funny stories, and I've seen them myself. Like some waterfowl hunters would gather them up. Right? Oh, they all would wear them on the, as necklaces. <laughs> I mean, you'd go into some Newfoundland houses, and, you know, up on the kitchen window, there'd be this oh, big jewelry now. Yeah. filled up with these. I mean, if you shoot a banded bird, that is. I mean, there's whole waterfowl brands that are just banded this and banded that, yeah. and jewelry this, jewelry that. And yeah. it, it's interesting that it all came from that, but I think that just yeah. goes back to our – Curiosity. Yeah. I think it's driven by curiosity, if I had to guess. And our willingness to try to, um, you know, solve incredible problems with limited resources. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, we, and that's a great case of doing it, man. Yeah. But, <laughs> a little metal uh, band around their legs. I mean, can you imagine the oh, first time that, my neck? Yeah. First time that was thought up in a, in a boardroom. You told that uh, gentleman or lady that, uh, some guys would be wearing it around their neck. Yeah, they'd never wear it. Like, yeah. No, yeah. no, that would never happen. Um, here's another uh, one that I, I read some papers that was recently challenged. Uh, not the idea, but the, the the way that's being carried out. is Science is the proper tool for discharge of wildlife policy. Right. Uh, I think this one, in terms of the defense of this model to someone who doesn't hunt or who would challenge it, I think this one probably is the one that comes up Mm. The most often in my mind. Yeah. Um, I think the, the the principle here, of course, is that you cannot simply rely on anecdotal evidence and personal opinion as the best way to move forward. Not because uh, personal opinion and experiential local knowledge may not be good, but simply because wildlife being such vagile creatures, by that we mean they move so much and they travel under such circumstances where they are hard to scrutinize. And we often for years and decades didn't know where breeding locations were or wintering locations were and so on. <clears throat> and because the resource was going to be continued to be utilized, that there had to be an independent not just a knowledge-based science, remember, an independent way of bringing information to bear on the conservation of wildlife. A lot of the criticism that you, that are, focuses on this principle, it seems to me, really if you peel the layers of the onion back, it's because people have a reluctance about science itself 
or feel it's not accurate or feel it doesn't agree with what their own experiences have been or things of this nature. But the principle that you would have an objective body of information to apply that would override the potential for other information to influence decisions that might be motivated by personal desire or political interest or whatever. That's really what was being talked about here. I think the more uh, legitimate problem for this principle, but in fairness is only one that has really come to the fore of discussion in conservation policy in the last three or four decades and is rising a great deal more, is the recognition that we need to have more than what we call classic, orthodox, Western kind of science. In other words, I don't think too many people would disagree that we need science, but there are many people, including myself, who would argue that what we need is science as well as local knowledge, as well as experiential knowledge. In other words, there's many different kinds of knowledges that need to be integrated, none of which should be the exclusive arbiter of decision-making. Yeah, do you feel like science would be the culmination of those things or just one of the one of the features? Because, you know, I think it's probably important here to define science like how it relates here. And to me, it's this, the population studies, like population dynamics, health of habitats, um, and other things. I mean, there, there are other things I'm sure I'm missing there, but you know, how would you define science within, within this context? Well, I mean, I think what's really important for people who are non-scientists to understand about science and what it's really important for society, scientists to express much more closely and not forget themselves, and this came up in our discussions last night over the grizzly bear, science is not, um, science is not uh, simply you know, a different or better kind of knowledge. Science is a way of seeing the world. Science is a way of formulating information that can, that is essentially objective. It is, it is tested within itself by metrics and statistics and so on and so forth. And those outcomes become what make it believable or not believable or somewhat believable. Science is also something that you have as a replicatable, uh, a replicable uh, kind of uh, knowledge base that, okay, if I say to Ben, Ben, I believe there are a thousand black ducks nesting in that particular area, and I know that because I looked at them through this way, I did these transects or I did photo surveys or whatever, this is exactly how I did it, Ben should be able to take those approaches and he should be able to independently of me, with no knowledge of me at all, I could be fishing for sailfish in Florida while he's doing this, uh, he should be able to come up with essentially something very, very close. So what has happened is, of course, that over time, science initially as natural history, which was a big thing in this country at the time the North American models ideas were founded. Everybody was getting really interested in that. Gradually got, you know, changed and modified and refined perhaps or rigorized into what we know as the scientific approaches of today that we use. Mm. I mean, they have provided an enormous amount of information that 
extends across regions and distances that no human being living in a local circumstance could ever hope to know. Having said that, we also over time have seen a number of glaring circumstances where science, classic science as we are talking about here, and classic scientific information, has proven itself to be wrong, yeah. inaccurate, and that the policies based upon it were therefore in error, and more more importantly and more relevantly to our discussion, there have also been examples where not only has that happened, that science has been inaccurate and it has failed, et cetera, et cetera, but at the same time, uh, experiential knowledge was being offered by knowledgeable people that was ignored that proved to be accurate. Yeah. The, one of the best-known cases in the world and one I'm intimately familiar with is the collapse of the massive aggregation of fish known as the northern cod off the east and northeast coast of the island of Newfoundland, which was fished for five centuries by virtually every nation in the world that had seagoing fisheries fleets, and which eventually collapsed in 1992, and which, despite any active fishing, is now still only at a less than 5% of its, of its original biomass. Um, in that particular circumstance, the small boat inshore fishermen had for decades warned with deep conviction and extraordinary frustration that the science that was being provided through research vessel surveys and catch efforts from the commercial fleets, for whatever reason, was wrong. They knew it was wrong. They had generations of experience of catching these fish the sizes of fish, the amount of fish they would catch, the influence of weather and tide and so on and so forth. In the graveyards of their homes were buried their grandfathers and their fathers and their great-grandfathers and their great-great-grandfathers and their great-great-great-grandfathers, etc. And they had all of this knowledge. And ultimately, what happened? Even after the last scientific assessment of the stock said there could still be a commercial fishery, Essentially, the commercial fleets were called back by the owners of the companies because they could not pay for the very gas that it was taking to mobilize these ships out to, to hunt these fish down. And so that, too, is a reason why we should be cautious about the principle. Mm -hmm. So I would say that really what would be uh, you know, a more fulsome articulation of that is that knowledge, scholarship, and classic science should, you know, the best of it should be applied to yeah, the decision making. Weighed, yeah, yeah. I was reading. I had to pull this paper up. I was reading it. Uh, it's the hallmarks of science missing from North American wildlife management. It was a study done um, by the American Association of the Advanced of Science. And they were challenging a little bit of this, um, obviously by the title. Um, and they did some surveys to, to look at uh, state game agencies yep. and, and, and federal agencies to see exactly how they were doing it. And they yep. said, they said um, their framework had four fundamental hallmarks of science, right? Measurable objectives, evidence, transparency, and independent review. Um, and this study, it seems like it might have had a predetermined outcome, but nonetheless, they found 
it to be less than you know less than acceptable what was actually going on on the ground as 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 far as applied science and wildlife management um how do you feel about that i mean you know it's got to be true at some level just because of the varying i mean you know the, the varying agencies and the varying you know, places that this is happening there's no way that we've perfected it i mean it's, it's impossible well we did respond to that paper a group of us we 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 wrote a written response and the authors wrote a written response back to us which is the normal kind of process um first of all um and somewhat to your point if you really want to examine the full role and influence that science has had uh, on the conservation of North American wildlife, you're going to have to do a lot more than examine the kinds of records that these people did, that these authors did. You know, just the number of graduate students, masters and PhD students. Yeah, if I just referred to they just said they they tested those things in hunt management plans created by 62 U.S. state and Canadian provincial territory agencies across 667 management systems. Yeah. Right? So this is what we're talking about, you know, expressed plans. Yeah. So so just let me finish the first thought. Yeah. Um, there is this massive escalation of science which has been born out of a dedication to making conservation the most professional and the most um, the most objective as it can possibly be measured under not only the growth of those graduate students but the institutions of learning and the multiplication of programs and plans for the U.S. Geological Survey, cooperative wildlife research units and academics working at hundreds and hundreds of universities across Canada and the United States. Um, we have seen the application of science in brilliant format in things such as the North American Waterfowl Management Plan and in aspects dealing with many, many other recovery of wildlife species such as eagles and various other species that at one time were listed and recovered in dealing with catastrophic events that emerged that we did not predict such as the DDT crisis and the loss of species. So there have been many large-scale phenomenon that are lost in this particular review. The specific issue dealing with hunted species and the use of science in the development of management plans and their application. Certainly it is true and will always remain true in my view that you will never be able to have up-to-date, current, ongoing science, which they do not define. But let's assume that means population surveys. Let's assume that means radio collaring efforts to track, you know, home ranges and range use and so on, habitat inventories in terms of its quality and its abundance and so on and so forth. There was not enough money in the universe uh, to be able to do this on an ongoing basis for every single species that's hunted in every single circumstance. However, that does not mean that science is not being used. It may be a five-year-old survey, which is the best they have of that kind, but the agency supports that information by examining current license sales or success rates or something of this nature. So it would be an ideal and wonderful world where for every species that's ever hunted in every province and in every state that you know we had this total uh, in-depth prescription. But I would also say that while it is not possible, perhaps, even though desirable if it could be done, 
the hunted species on this continent have for a hundred years come through a pattern of deep loss to one of recovery, escalation, and continued sustainable use for a hundred years yeah. in most cases. Of all the things we've said in this, almost two hours, that is the thing. If anybody's listening to this, take away that. Yeah. Take that away. Yeah. And, and any challenge, just not that any, all, any of these things are infallible, but that is infallible, that idea that you just put out there. Yes, this is true. I mean, the species that are on the endangered species listing, in the main, in the vast majority of cases, are species that are not actually targeted by, you know, millions of people who hunt and who fish in this country. It's just the opposite. But those species that are hunted and fished were and would have been on an Endangered Species Act if we'd had one in 1900, and yet they were rescued, in fact, out of that abyss to the point where we have, you know, four to six million wild turkeys when we only had a couple of hundred thousand yeah. to where we have, you know, yeah. 30 more, million white-tailed deer yeah, or whatever. more deer than ever. Yeah, on this kind, right. That, you know, that we know of. Yeah, this now, that doesn't mean we don't have now approaching some real challenges. Caribou in particular are in deep trouble, and we have on the southern distribution of their range amazing problems developing for moose that may well be linked to climate change and tick infestations and warming temperatures and so on and so forth. But uh, so it's not free and it's not separate. But I think that the, I think that it is possible in something as big as North American conservation for hunted and non-hunted species. My goodness, the numbers of them, and to go into any states, provinces, or countries and find that we're lacking what we might want. Look at the amount of money it takes to closely monitor the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem grizzly bear population. Just one species. Yeah. And imagine and ask yourself, where would the money come from if we were trying to do or needed to do or could do that with every species? Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't. No. No. These animals are valuable to us, but they're not that valuable. Yeah. I mean, they're they're of importance, but not not to that level. And this argument, by the way, you know, uh, it's uh, uh, relatives of this argument that was posited by the authors there does show up in other debates. And some of the listing and delisting of grizzly bears is, again, relevant, of course, mm-hmm. because in many cases it were there were questions of science that led to a relisting of species and so on. Like there might have been inadequate science on genetic connectivity or you know recovery of satellite populations or whatever, right? So this, this notion creeps in. And it's important for society to realize that, um, you know, we cannot always await effective solutions um, until we get the perfect knowledge base. We had no perfect knowledge base. We virtually had no knowledge base at all, except we had a disastrous loss. That's about our only database we had at the turn of the 20th century. But we launched a recovery for those wildlife species that is absolutely phenomenal. So, you know, sometimes we can do good things even when our knowledge is imperfect, if we have the right motivations and clear thinking. Yeah, do you feel like, uh, the last point around this I'd I'd like to cover, is do you feel like our ability to, uh, it's a huge point to say that we we have the innate ability to recover and sustain 
populations that we value in a sense that we like to kill them and eat them or, you know, we value for that reason, right? To go back to the value system. Like we have, it's an innate ability to, to take care of animals that we have value for rather than they're just their value on its own. And I feel like the beauty of all this is that, you know, the moose, for example, has value to a lot of people that don't hunt it, but it has increased value to people that do. And those are the people that take, I feel like, the most hands-on approach with keeping them around and keeping them sustainable. Um, but I think the question here is, how do we, how does this, and I'm not sure if this has ever been, I'm sure this has been challenged, but I've never read it, um, the, like the non-consumptive species, how do they play into, into this and I know, I know your opinion on this because we've talked about it, but can you just articulate, you know, how you feel about um, the songbird or the not, you know, just any particular non-consumptive species, if that's the right term to use, how that, that falls into this whole process and, and how we've done and including it in it. Well, I think there's, um, there's probably two, uh, as I view it, two major uh, legitimate weaknesses in the North American model as it has been articulated and described and as we're discussing it today. Um, with regard to the principles that have been articulated, I think it's more a matter of discussing particular aspects or the, the, the stretch, you know, the, the, the resilience and expansiveness that they have and how we should apply them, and but their value in their own sense. In other words, all of those principles should have been there. Yes. But there are two that I think are more uh, fundamental, and I and I know why this really were not articulated at the time, because again, the model's initial construct was in reaction to the circumstance we covered earlier in the podcast. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day 
into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. But it is impossible to talk about, I think, principles and hopes and visions for North American conservation and have such an overwhelming emphasis on hunted species. Uh, which, as we talked about with regard to owning reptiles or amphibians, yeah. freights with it certain real differences that play out. Um, I think, you know, we've all come to recognize that uh, concern for the natural world to be effective must see it as all those moving parts. And as Le- Leopold said, um, you know, the, the the first lesson in tinkering is you, you keep all the parts, right? You, yeah. you know that they all matter. The tiny washer, the tiny nut, the little screw, the spring. And uh, I think that we need to do a much better job of speaking for those species than we have. And I have extolled the hunting community for 25 years to do this, not so much in the light of it being a weakness of the model, but just because I happen to personally believe that this is right and correct, and that because the hunting movement was so well organized and relatively well funded and has so many NGOs and raises so much money, that we were in a position to do far more for the rest of nature than we did and I also thought that it was of a practical nature that, you know, some of the criticisms we got for being so biased in our, you know, our efforts and our focus was entirely legitimate and would eventually be part of the thing that would undermine hunting in Canada and the United States. And I remain convinced to this day that along with our marriage with television, that the failure of the hunting community to speak out about any creature except those that are hunted has created a subtle, lasting, very difficult to expunge impression in the broad conscience of society. And it is going to take us a long time to address this. One of the things I have recommended for decades to hunting-based NGOs is that they allot a significant percentage of their budgets to non-hunted species, Mm. conservation efforts. I suggest 20%. It could be 10, it could be 30. I I think the more important issue is not the number. The more important issue is the deliberate decision to do it. I don't know why they won't do it, but I know none of them will. 
Um, and I imagine you could just follow the money there, couldn't you? You could, but they, but I know that, I mean, I'm close enough to most of them to know at least the ones I've asked for haven't done it. Um, and that doesn't mean no one is doing it, of course, but even if they are, it's very small scale. Yeah. It's, it's almost nil. I mean, I've never found any evidence of it other than like, oh, well, when we do the turkey habitat, it's good for the, like you weren't doing it. That wasn't the purpose of your action. So that's, and, and some of the species, like even if people wanted to think about this strategically, to invest money, for example, in sea turtle rescue, to invest money in efforts to safeguard mountain gorillas or chimpanzees, um, dolphins, what I mean, penguins. You know, there are some really high-profile, iconic species that children in particular love. And if you just wanted to even be smart about your own future, you might want to think about doing this. But they don't get that. They really don't get that. Believe me, Ben, they don't get that. Yeah. And that is a source of enormous frustration to me. And um, so it's in line with that kind of weakness in the model, I think. Yes, we did a great job with the hunted species. There is no question the evidence is there. But we have hundreds of species in Canada and the United States that are listed as threatened and endangered. We even allowed iconic species like the osprey and like the peregrine and like the bald eagle. I mean, we sat by and watched this. What hunting organization ever raised its head in these debates? And if we're really going to pat ourselves on the back over and over and over again for the things we have done, like what about the things we will do? or could do in this case. And I think this is where I'm coming through. I will predict that if the hunting community does not soon begin to do a number of really significant things, one of which is this, uh, I think we're going to be shocked by the future declines in this activity. And we have already, we're going down fast. We had almost 40 million hunters in this country in 1970. We've got 12 million today. The next survey will show we've got about 10, maybe 11. However, so that's one of the bio, one of the things that I think is vacant from the model that I think is yeah. a serious issue. The other one that I feel really strongly about, and which is something that preoccupies me a great deal, uh, I also, you know, spent a lot of time in this literature. And as a matter of fact, even with me on this trip, I've just finished another book. I keep saying I won't read any more of them. (laughs) But it has to do with Native Americans. Mm. Um, At the broadest scale, we know the injustices that took place, and we need not belabor it here. But the truth of the matter was that there was a North American model of sustainable use and conservation to some extent ongoing in on this continent by a huge diversity of peoples who had capacities and knowledge of the natural world that I would suggest far surpasses probably that of almost anyone living today. And they actively shaped the continent They were not passive engagers in it. In other words, it wasn't as though they didn't have management interventions, prescribed fire being amongst the most important that they used on a traditional basis in various parts of the country. 
They strongly influence the dynamic of species, both good and bad. They may have played a major role initially in the decline of the megafauna on this continent. They were responsible in many ways through habitat manipulation and through hunting in terms of uh, you know, the, the local abundances of certain species, as we know from the Lewis and Clark uh, journals and so on and so forth, how effective the native communities, the native people's communities can be in that regard. They had created enormous you know, appreciation for those resources and looked upon them as things they constantly needed to give thanks for through their dances and their tribal feasts and so on and so forth. Um, they had, in other words, an, an, uh, an intimate connection with nature that transcended not just the hunting and of species for food and other materials, but their ideas of you know, medicinal plants, how essentially to live off the land under extraordinary circumstances. And I have always felt that, um, you know, we needed to not so much say that the model as we are using it today was borrowed from or influenced by and all of that, because probably it was not. But much of our early knowledge of how to capture these animals, how to kill these animals, how to hunt these animals, where they were, how they distributed them, themselves, and so on, were actually learned by frontier movers yeah. from those indigenous and those native peoples. And it seems to me that to talk about a North American model of wildlife conservation and to have a total silence on you know the 14 or 15 and maybe longer thousand year history of peoples who were here and lived with depended upon and utilized and managed and did not destroy but sustainably utilized for that period that long a period of time the living resources of the continent that does seem to me to be something that we need to Address. I don't mean yeah. as a principle of the model or anything necessarily. Is it inf at least to inform but as it? A, but as a context and as an informant. Those, I think, are the really larger issues. Yeah, I mean, if we would take this, I mean, how far would you take this model back as far as well, how it is informed? I mean, to the 1860s is as far as you might go back. I mean, you would go further back than that. I mean, could you call it, you know, 200 years? If, if, I'd if be stretching it, you know I mean? So I, I think you're right about that. I mean, I think the real... You know, some of the some of the thinking started to emerge in the early part of the nineteenth century. But of course, like most other things, a lot was set aback with the Civil War in the mm -hmm. country and you know, even those kinds of thought patterns. I mean, after all, Caitlin, the famous ethnographer of Native Americans and you know painter and so on, I mean, he had recommended in the eighteen thirties that America designate what he called a nation's park. Not a national, a nation's, nation's park. park. That's what he called it. Which would be set aside in the American central plains and west where there were no European settlers anyway at that time uh, for the benefit of nature and for the red man, for the Native Americans that were there. So, there, you know, this thinking was going on yeah. um, 
And, you know, you leap 50 years, uh, 40 years ahead of that, and, you know, you come to all of a sudden there's a Yellowstone idea. And then 10 years after that, there's a Boone and Crockett yeah. idea and so yeah. on. So I, Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's, if, you, if you're going to look at roughly, you know, if you're being kind here, 200 years of our history, why would you not look at the, the preceding yeah. 1500? Uh, and, 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 and again, these, from the time when these peoples crossed the land bridge to the time that we found them, no. you would say that they're – that the wildlife was, from every report I've ever read, I'm sure you're just saying, the wildlife was plentiful <laughs> uh, yeah. in all kinds. Yeah. There were some exceptions where you had high densities of native peoples in the local yeah. environments, as you know, oft, uh, always happens. And it's not to say, oh, they were the perfect conservationists, no, you know, this kind no. of neo-colonialist attitude, you know, <laughs> you know, revisionist colonialist. No, it's not to say that. But I say one of the things that people will find in the new book is an amazing opening chapter uh, led by Dr. Geist and myself and Paul Krausman, uh, where he really examines the ecological history of the continent since the arrival of humans, not since the arrival of Europeans. There's probably not another three men on the continent who could have written that. Um, and so there is that. And in the in the uh, closing chapter and in the chapter on challenges, both of which I either co-wrote wrote or wrote, uh, this issue is also addressed, as is the issue of the invertebrates, the non-game non species. species. Also. But this will be the first time I'm aware of that in a significant publication, you know, a book, Johns Hopkins Press, I mean, a highly respected academic publisher, this will be the first time that these ideas will really be brought to fruition. Um, it's, it's a good, you know, uh, it, uh, let's actually get to the, I want to miss a uh, tenant here, a <laughs> principle. The last principle is democracy of hunting. Yep. Uh, take us through that quickly. I think we've, we've discussed it already yep. in, in, a lot, in a lot of ways. So Very briefly, the idea was that wildlife belongs to everyone, number one, and therefore access to it in any form should be by democratic right. In other words, no one should be excluded because of race, class, financial circumstance, gender, you know, religion, whatever. And when it came to hunting, of course, this was given a prominence, uh, and it's rightfully so, I think, that in this articulation of the principles, Geist's articulation, that hunting is mentioned because, as we talked about just earlier the decision could have been to end all hunting because it was animal death that was causing the decimation of the animal populations. But the genius was to actually make hunting, the taking of the animal, the incentivized basis for the recovery of species and that eventually became the NGOs and the agencies and so on. You know, without that activity, we wouldn't, agencies wouldn't look like they do today and so on and so forth, obviously. And there'd be a lot of institutions that we would not require. Some might say that'd be a good thing, but let's leave that there for the moment. Um, and so uh, the other factor here, of course, was that hunting in certain parts of Europe, not all parts of Europe, but certain parts of Europe, was very much a class-oriented and exclusionary and in some cases, exclusive privilege. And uh, America would have none of that. And of course, uh, that's why it was very clearly articulated that if you were a citizen and you were identified as, a, you know, that you could legally participate in this activity, which eventually involved testing and stuff, that, but that came much, much later, uh, then you should have access and that you should never be turned away because of your race, religion, color, or 
status, and that's what happened there. And may I just say, too, in talking about that last one, that um, it's really interesting that Canada, which at the time of this great ferment in the 1860s to 1925 period, was a loyal part of the dominion of, of Britain, uh, did not adopt the British approach to conservation, but joined with the United States of America. And that was a prescient, uh, wise uh, decision made by Prime Minister Sir Wilfrid Laurier and a group of equally aggressive, visionary individuals working on the Canadian side and the fact that Theodore Roosevelt um, uh, invited Canadians to participate in the yeah. big discussions that he had around this issue. Yeah. Well, I think this is, I mean... I might have, we're going to split up this into two episodes. We're going to have to because it's because I think uh, I want people to really I, I want even for myself to really be able to focus on this entire story, right? This entire seven tenets and or principles. I'm stop calling them tenets after this conversation. The principles and what they truly mean because you you could read them in in their brief and and kind of get it. But to hear them in this uh, the histor- historical context and the context of your ex- personal experiences is, is is huge. And, um, I read a, I want to end with, I read a story recently only because I went down this rabbit hole of like trying to find challenges to my own beliefs. Right. I wanted to find these, these, you know, what I thought were, you know, well articulated challenges with things I believe. And there's this, um, story I read called the, the cult of hunting and its timely demise. Right. And it kind of, it, it kind of, gave the counterpoints to the story that we're going through, right? So it, it gave rise to market hunting as the problem, uh, as, as a problem that was, was all about hunting. And it kind of just selectively cherry-picked um, some of the more negative components of hunting throughout history. Um, and I wanted to read a line from the end of it that, I, that it made me think. Um, and I wanted to see what your reaction was to it. It says... We need federal policies that empower everyone in this country, urban or rural, white, black, red or brown, female or male, who cherish animals simply because they exist or to enjoy watching them or, yes, to hunt them. When it comes to living with wild animals on this earth, they are sentient beings like us. They deserve rights. Their welfare deserves our attention. Um, more to the first half of that sense, how do we, if, if this model you know, kind of talks so much about hunting, how do we allow this or, or this model to to give credence to what this person is saying? The writer here is saying David Matson about the the urban the the folks that that maybe don't even understand this model. Um, how do we make it seem more inclusive? I guess would be the point maybe he's making or what I would make overall. Well, I mean, I think we do need to make it more inclusive, and I think the efforts to to um, to get hunting organizations to step across the divide, if I could put it that way more, is a very simple part of doing that, which the hunting community deeply resists, effectively resists, consistently resists. Um, But the other way of doing this, which is also a front I'm working on, is to bring people who are not members of the hunting world into a a, um, forum of realization that there are uh, issues that both hunters and they themselves care about, uh, number one. And number two, that we can agree entirely uh, 
or some of us can, with the philosophies that are expressed here, that those animals have absolutely their own inherent value um, and that uh, our purpose must be fundamentally, first and foremost, to keep them. Not to keep them, uh, and this is where I would disagree maybe a little bit, having only listened to the quote or where I might refine it just a little bit, but to keep them not just for any purpose, but to keep them. I firmly believe that we have a responsibility, but I don't really, for myself, consider it a responsibility in that onerous sense. But I do believe humanity has a responsibility to keep wildlife with us. For me, it is just what I do. I don't view it as a mission, and I don't view it as a responsibility. I just view it as the air I breathe. Um, For me, um, whether we hunt them or whether we don't, and even to some extent whether we view them or whether we don't, would never stop me from doing the work that I do. Um, And while I believe there is only a single equation that we have yet seen in the ecological world, which means we are all tied together in some kind of trophic way, um, I don't believe that we should always only be thinking about animals in some way in which we can can commodify their value. I think this is a mistake that all sides in the debate make. You know, when I interact with an animal, and in my career, as I've told you many times, I have had such long and deep experiences, very often by myself with them. Um, I don't think about them as... um, I don't think about them as, as something odd or unique or outside. Yes, they enthrall. They interest me. I have to look at them. But once you reach a certain relationship with them, it is very much like they are companions. And I, the best way for me to explain this is I worked on the, in the wilderness barrenlands of Newfoundland for certainly solidly 25 years, in which case... You know, caribou were amongst the most visible of animals. They're white, they're social, they stand out on the on the landscape, and we have a very white caribou, very arctic-looking caribou. And I live with them through the rise and the peaking of the population, and I live with them through the drastic reductions that they and so many other caribou herds have now gone through. After a while, every day that I was on that land with just my pack on my back, just walking... You know, um, they were there. They were walking along the the eskers, and they were they were crossing small streams, and they were coming out of small burns that took place on the the patchwork land that we were on together. And they were walking across the bogs, you know, with the water on their hocks and so on. And after a while, you just know they were the, they were there was three of them over there, and there was five of them over there. But you weren't glassing them; you were you were just walking. Now, the animals that I might have been studying for a specific reason they were they were of special interest to some extent, and even then, I would have to leave them as darkness came to get back to my tent or to get back to some place to be picked up by aircraft or whatever the particular circumstance was. And they would just continue to walk across that land. And the most 
the only really sad, frustrating experience I have consistently had in the natural world is realizing that I had now reached my limits of naturalness with them. They just went on into the darkness, man. They just went on into the night wind. But I had to get to something. I had to get to a tent, or I had to get to a cabin, or I had to get back to a float plane base, or I had to wait for a helicopter to pick me up at a prescribed place. And they just went on. I would rejoin them, or some others like them, the next few, next day. But again, again, that evening, I would have to leave them again. And, um, you know... Uh, it's in that context that I agree wholeheartedly with people who say they have just a value simply of being. Whether I believe they should have rights in any sense is not something I think a great deal about um, intellectually. Uh, I'm not one who advocates for that. But I have come to the absolute firm conclusion that no one can dislodge from me now, that we are no different from them and they are no different from us, only in the sense that we're all unique species. But I don't believe any more the poppycock about they don't feel this and they don't think that, and they, you know, they don't have this intelligence and all those kinds of things. Because all of those arguments are designed to show that we are somehow special. But you cannot take a human being and fly them, tow them through the air from, you know, on Gava Bay on the Arctic Ocean and bring them halfway down to the, to the bottom of South America and then the next spring tell them to find their way back. You know, I could give a list of a million incredible things that wildlife does that we are completely incapable of doing, just as I can list a million things we're capable of doing that other species cannot. And the conundrum for me is not about, however, whether we should utilize them or would utilize them, which might be a logical place for me to end up. Mm-hmm. Because that would belie the rhythm that I came to understand living with them, which is that we are all connected. The bear will run down the caribou calf and consume it. And the caribou will seek the young shoots of spring to feed itself and to produce milk to raise that calf. And the bull caribou will segregate themselves to feed and fatten and fight in the fall. And some of them will die in the pursuit of that. But, you know, we are all connected by an ecological equation that in one way or another, things live for a period and things die for a period, and there is no other way for life to continue. But when I see people who somehow think animals are inferior to human beings or should be treated in ways that we would not treat human beings and so on and so forth, Man, I am out there with the animal advocates as far out as you can bloody well get. Yeah. And I just think that if the, make one final statement vis-a-vis -vis the hunting world and where we're headed, 
if we don't dramatically clean up the imagery and the image of the hunter in modern society, this thing will be destroyed, not by anti-hunter advocates. It will be destroyed by the centrist change, the overwhelming force of value change in the societies in which we live. The animals now sell you your motorcycle insurance, animals sell you fertilizer, animal book your trips, animal book your, book your hotels, animals sell, send you your, your things you, you take because so, you can't sleep in the nighttime. As I said to a group of people the other night at a local restaurant here in Bozeman, do me a favor and tomorrow walk along the main street. I'm not sure it's called Main Street, but the main road where most of the mercantile uh, shops are and take a small notebook and go in and out of those stores and write down, just put a tick down every time you see animal imagery on a napkin, on a cushion, on a bedspread, on a glass, on a cooler, on a cup on a piece of clothing, on a piece of furniture, you will be absolutely astounded. Yeah. My son is two years old, and he lives in a world where animals talk to him. Of course. They are his friends. Sure, I'm sure. Yeah. It's and, a strange box that he watches. But, I mean, it, yeah. it, that's his life. That's all he knows. That's all he'll ever know. Um, his clothes have animals on them. His his. His backpack, his you know, everything. his cap, yeah. his everything, his toys, his whole life is revolved around. Before he'll even learn how to connect the dots, there, his his life is, yeah, is uh, taken over by mm. animals, and not in a way that it has any reality to him. You know, no, but uh, but it says that it said it talks about our innate interest in them. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to, to end it. Um, I think everybody should go out and do just what Shane um, advised there, but also learn as much as you can about the North American model. If you haven't learned it all here, uh, there will be a book coming out this September that can can um, put it all together for you. But I think as we as hunters, my opinion is these are things that we should be required to know. Uh, the thing that we go out and do is a very serious undertaking, um, should be taking, uh, and we should be requiring of ourselves, um, you know, the intellectual and and mental acuity to understand all of these things um, in detail. So hopefully this helps you out with that. And Shane, thanks as always for sitting down. Yeah, you're welcome. It's most enjoyable. All right. That's it. That's all. Another episode of the Hunting Collective is done. Thank you to Shane Mahoney for coming through and spending this much time with us. Uh, hopefully you listened to part one and this part two uh, kind of closed the loop for you. There's obviously a million things to talk about within this conversation, but hopefully two and a half or, or so hours put it in better context for you, gave you more tools to go forward and have more educated conversations with non-hunters and even other hunters about these concepts because from one to seven, the principles put forth in this model are the things that govern what we do. Uh, they govern our ideas, our feelings, our thoughts, our actions around hunting and conservation. So there's no, in my mind, conversation more important than this one as a foundational level of how we think about our interactions with wildlife. So thank you for, for sticking in there. Thanks for listening to Shane. 
and coming back for part two. We both appreciate it. Uh, Shane is, is a good man. You can hear him uh, in many places, but sh- be sure to look him up at Conservation Visions on Facebook, and then you can watch a lot of his content on rmef.org. Um, you could see him speaking at, at almost uh, every damn conference, every damn wildlife conference in the country. The dude is prolific, and he gets around. So hopefully this helps you understand all about Shane and his ideas. What else? What else? What else? What else? What else we got? Oh, shit. Uh, I probably told you about the Meteor to Live podcast. Well, we're still going. You can't stop us. Uh, we're going to be in Austin on April 2nd, I, I believe. And we're going to be talking to you folks there. We'll be at Boise, Idaho at the Rendezvous as well. Uh, we will just come back from portland and we have a seattle stop which i won't be at but uh, folks like april Voki, slam lundgren and more will be there on stage to hear the cheering crowd and so come and show up because you'll hear me talk about it on this podcast a bunch but it's one of the more special experiences i've had in my professional life um, sitting in on these panels and talking and laughing and meeting people and just being a part of us this community that we've created and i couldn't be happier to do it couldn't be happier to meet everyone shake your hands um man it's 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 fun and it never gets old and hopefully it never will and so everything else is is normal business to the wrap up go subscribe to our newsletter if you're not you're missing out man every wednesday this thing is full of impertinent information go and um go to the website click around man go to the store find something you want to buy there hopefully it says hunting collective on it if it doesn't it should say mediator on it or wired to hunt or some other thing it doesn't really matter what matters is you go there and you click around and hopefully you enjoy your time we work hard very hard on these stories and these products hopefully you enjoy them and make your life a little bit better in whatever way that they can so that's all that i have for this week of the hunting collective thanks again for a wonderful conversation and let's all learn and celebrate and challenge the North American model of wildlife conservation. Thank you. See ya. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.